0: And it was in that moment that I realized that all of the stress, all of the anxiety, all of the fear, I'm doing it to myself. Hey,
1: everyone, and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Weak to Speak. My name is Sam Webb, and this show is dedicated to ending the stigma around mental health through community, connection, and the hard-hitting truth. I'll be speaking with guests from all over the world about life to inspire and to educate people to speak up so that we can save more lives. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Weak to Speak. A huge, huge thank you to everyone who's taking those steps to improve themselves, to become better, to become greater, and to work on themselves in all aspects of life. I don't ever want to take your time for granted, and I appreciate everyone, wherever you are, listening into these episodes, week in, week out. We appreciate it. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for sharing with me your progress, your goals, your achievements, and the tips and tools that you have learned along the way that are working for you. They mean the world to me and to our community, so thank you very much. Well, today's guest personifies greatness in every aspect of the word. His name is Jason Goldberg. He goes by the name of JG. He's certainly come from very humble beginnings, and he's had challenges that have rocked him in more ways than one, and he's exceptionally been able to bust through them with huge positives, huge impacts, not only on himself, but the rest of the world. He's an award-winning entrepreneur, a TEDx speaker. He was a former rapper who opened, believe it or not, used to open for the Wu-Tang Clan. Yes, really, and he was previously 330 pounds in weight and has since lost 130 pounds despite his love for bacon. Jason is the author of the number one best-selling book, prison break, which we're going to dive very deep into today. He's going to share an exciting giveaway to you guys. So stay tuned, listen to the entire episode. He's going to be very generous and give away something today to everyone that's listening. But besides that, there's a lot of other things that Jason does and can do. And it's too long to talk about right now. And I don't want to give too much of it away. So without further ado, let's get him on the podcast. I'm actually sitting here. With JG, Jace, Jason Goldberg, mate, thank you very much for giving me your time. I can't wait to have you on the show today and talk all things Prison Break, your TED Talk, how on earth you lost so much weight in such a short period of time, and everything else, mate, that you've accomplished and that you're up to now, mate. Welcome on to the show. Dude, I'm, I'm so honored to be here from the first time you and I met, and it was like we clicked and we went
0: deep right away. There was no like surface bullshit. It was like, if we're going to meet and we're going to talk, let's make it count. And so I'm excited to do that here too, man.
1: I feel like it's the same. You know, we're on the same level when it comes to having conversations on a deeper level and getting a better understanding about each other and what we're up to and how we're making a difference and how we can support one another on our journeys as well, mate. But on that, let's just talk about some of the personal stuff. How on earth were you singing alongside Wu-Tang Clan? How did that all come about? (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's always the first, it's like no matter what I do in my life, always Are you a former
1: rapper, mate? Is this for real? Are you taking the piss in?
0: Dude, this is actually for real, former rapper and still a rapper. Like I don't think you could ever take the, you can take (laughs) the kid out of the rap but you can't take the rap out of the kid. I got into hip hop from a very young age and then I just kind of kept progressing with it. And then when I was about 19, I fell in with a group of guys that were actually doing it pretty seriously, pretty sincerely. We got into it and then basically we were like kind of the go-to rap group in Orlando, Florida. That's where I'm, I'm from. And so when big acts would come into town, we would be the ones that would go and open up for them. And so Wu-Tang was one of those. And I've just always been a Wu-Tang fan and a hip hop fan. So that was like, that was next level, man. It was was a legendary time.
1: What did that feel like, mate, opening up for the Wu-Tang Clan? Surreal? It's no different than
0: what I do now, really, man. There's just something about being able to know that you're affecting people, whether it's entertainment or it's like life-changing stuff, whatever it is. And it was actually really less about Wu-Tang for me and more about just like being on the stage for an audience that just really wanted to hear what I had to say, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it was rap, I wasn't doing a keynote speech, but like they were just entertaining (laughs) and I just like my entire life and I'm sure we'll get into this my entire life, like being able to entertain other people was a way that really helped me feel kind of enough and, and so, like it was always just, how can I get that feeling more and more, making a difference for other people? How can I do that more and more?
1: And I appreciate you sharing that because I noticed in the language and the way that you write, especially in your book, which we'll definitely talk about, you do always come with a bit of a comedic spin to things, don't you? And that, and that's what you normally lead in. And is that something that you've just genuinely been interested in your whole life, and it comes from a sacred place? Is it? Did it start when you were young? Where did that all come from, man? If you don't mind me asking.
0: No, totally. I don't mind you asking anything. And to me, it's really interesting that comedic perspective, that comedic direction, that was born almost entirely from pain. Because growing up, I was raised by a single mother. I'm an only child. My father left my mom when she was pregnant. Never seen him, never met him. He could walk by me on the street, I wouldn't even know who he was. And so from a very young age, I think I was trying to fill some kind of a hole to feel enough, right? To not feel abandoned, rejected, whatever it was. And I noticed that when I made people laugh, I felt this sense of love. I felt this sense of acceptance, and so I was always a kid performing for my family and like doing little, you know, shows and songs and, and whatever as a kid. And I was the class clown like from a very, very early age, and so it came from a place of pain and wanting to be enough. And then I was able to somewhere down the line take that kind of shadow and make it into a gift, and realize that comedy and levity. It's not even comedy necessarily like telling jokes, but levity, humor, bringing lightness to a situation not only helps us to deal with the situation, but it actually helps people to learn better. And so I've always just had this comedic spin because I just wanted to feel like I was making a difference. I wanted to feel the love and acceptance on kind of the pain side. But then I also really wanted to make a difference for people. And I realized that comedy was what kind of lowered people's resistance so that they would actually be open to hearing whatever the message is that I was trying to share. that makes sense.
1: Yeah, mate, absolutely. And when you add a little bit of comedic spin to something maybe that's a really heavy, hard felt topic... It's almost like you build an instantaneous relationship with someone over trust. It's like the barriers are broken down, aren't they? When you can sort of get someone to laugh. Would you say that statement's true?
0: I totally think that because here's the thing, dude, is we're empathy machines. Every time we meet somebody, we're immediately saying, is that person like me or not like me? And if they're like me, I want to be in your world. If they're not like me, it's either like I'm going to keep my distance or I'm going to run away because you're totally somebody I can't be around just empathetically. Humor does something where it disarms us. And it allows who we really are to come out, which allows us to connect at a deeper level. And there's a challenge here, right? And you know this in the work you do, especially around mental health. Whenever possible, we want to bring levity. We want to humorize, but we don't want to trivialize. So this is not about like somebody saying, I'm really depressed. I'm really sad. And us making fun of them and say, oh, but it's funny. It's a joke. You're supposed to be lighter now. We don't want to trivialize what people are feeling. But what we want to do is we want to look out for the moment where somebody has lowered their resistance enough that a little bit of levity can have them take a deep breath and realize okay, maybe this is something I can work with after all. Maybe it's not as heavy as I thought it
1: was. That's really, really well said. And there is a fine line there, isn't there? between putting too much of a spin onto it where it's almost making fun of someone and then trivializing. Yeah, mate. It really, And it's important to know those boundaries and where you draw the line and stuff like that. And I'm sure with years of doing this, mate, and unpacking your own challenges and journeys along the way, which we're going to talk about shortly, it's really allowed you to see more than just making people smile and making people laugh. There's a lot more to it, isn't there, than just getting someone to giggle. It's the chain events that come with that.
0: Dude, at the end of the day, it's really safety. If somebody mm. feels safe, doesn't matter if you do that through humor, through compassion, okay. yeah. through physical touch, through words of affirmation, whatever the thing is, if people feel more safe, a lot of the problems that we have in the world, I think right now from mental health stuff all the way through to suicide and everything in between, I think if people really feel like they have a safe space to fall apart, and I think yeah. that that's a lot of things that we don't have, especially I think it's, it's really for men, depending how you were raised, even thinking about it being safe to share those kind of feelings and emotions with other men, No, that's not a masculine thing to do. I remember being somebody from a very young age who was very in touch with my emotions and my feelings and remember having people that I was friends with in high school call me a fag. Like, why are you such a fag? And so it's drilled into my head from a young age and in a teenage years that sharing your authentic emotions with other men makes you less of a man. Now, I had it in a little vacuum. I can't imagine people that have like families and friends and society Mm -hmm. and everybody telling them constantly, no, no, you're a dude. You don't talk about that shit. That's terrible, man. And then it leads to all this shit that we're dealing with now.
1: Yeah, it resonates very well. You and I both have done TED Talks. I definitely want to hear more about yours. And you've got so many views on it, which is outstanding, mate. So you're spreading a good message. But the one I spoke about on my TED Talk in New York was around exactly that conversation, breaking the burden around masculinity and creating safe spaces for people to turn to when they need to open up. And If you don't feel safe around someone, you're probably never going to open up and tell them how you're feeling on a deeper level because it's just not that you don't trust the person, it's just that maybe you just don't trust the space. The space isn't inviting, you know what I mean? So I always challenge people if they can become the safest person possible so that people can open up to them and share with them on a deeper level how they're feeling and what they're experiencing. And I think that could be the difference in a conversation that could change someone's life.
0: You nailed it, man, really creating that space where if you can be a safe person, that's. I love that you said that. If we can all go out in the world and say, how can I be 5% more
1: of a safe space for people to land? I think that would have an incredible ripple effect in our world. Definitely. And it's that's the sort of spaces where people need to turn to so that they do feel accepted and they don't feel weak and they don't feel like they're being judged. It's trying to reframe that conversation. But first of all, it starts with us. I think we've all got the responsibility to create those safe spaces for people around us. But mate, talking about the humor again. So when you turn to humor and from the pain side, right, did you ever have any like come downs or moments of where you weren't in a time where you were making people happy or you couldn't make people laugh and use your comedic edge? would that ever have a negative ripple effect on yourself You know, during quiet times and times when you're alone? What was the rebound effect like? Here's the challenge, man,
0: is that the reason that the humor becomes a shadow is when it's no different than a substance, right? Humor can become like a substance and then you can abuse that substance. And so if I'm constantly using humor to get people to love or approve or accept me, and I've never loved or approved of or accepted myself, then any moment of quiet, is a moment for the whole, the gaping hole to open back up again. And then it's, I have to go make somebody laugh or I'm not enough. And you'll see this with professional comedians. I'm not a professional comedian, but you'll see this. Some of the biggest professional comedians in the world are the most depressed people in mm-hmm. the entire world. Like literally they have just the most depressive lives because they use that humor as an outlet to externalize their pain and to externalize their healing. Right And no judgment on them because obviously I've done it myself. And there are still times that I do it. I will absolutely say there are still times when I do it. It's just part of the human experience. What I recognize now though is that I recognize that I can't fully do that for others unless I'm doing it for myself first. So it was a beautiful gift for me to recognize that in those quiet moments, I actually, there were no quiet moments. I would run from the quiet moments because the quiet moments were what showed me what I needed to work on. So it's like, no, 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 oh, fuck man. that. We don't have time for that.
1: Let's stay busy and do something for other people so that we can we don't have time to focus on our own thoughts because they're just too overwhelming right now. I can't deal with them. I can resonate on that front. I used to run a lot, you know, when I was dealing with a lot of pain. Not so much comedy on my end, mate, but. Yeah, I used to run a lot. I used to run away from things. So appreciate you sharing that and talk about the journey that you're on. I mean, I've read your book, Prison Break. You mentioned it a number of times through the book it took three decades for you to really get to a stage where you you learn all of this, you know, self leadership and everything else that comes with that. What was the trigger point for you? What was that game changing moment where you said? holy shit, I'm just going to do this. This is Now it makes sense. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing.
0: I think there's a lot of those moments. In chapter one, I kind of write about the moment. The name of the chapter is the day the universe cut me off at the peak of my professional success in my corporate job. So I'm like in my mid, late twenties, making well over six figures in a corporate IT job, have the house, have the car, have the wife, have all the things that are supposed to make us happy. And I was also at my highest physical weight that I had ever been in my entire life. So I was 330 pounds.
1: 330 pounds? And I'm six
0: foot one. I'm a tall guy, but even still, that's morbidly obese. I was about 40% fat, like a baby. Like I was literally 40% fat in my body. And I was dying a slow death, man. And it's, you know, not just the physical component, but I had so much stress and so much anxiety And so many bouts of depression and suicidal thoughts, you know, all the way into my mid 20s. And I had had these wake up calls along the way. It's not like I didn't think something was off. I just Mm -hmm. felt like that's just the way life is. I'm just an angry person. I'm just a depressed person. I'm just a sad person. This is just the way it is. Deal with it. And when I had this moment that I read about in the book, this kind of moment with an issue with my bank, with my credit card being cut off, there was just this moment where I couldn't run from the truth anymore. Like I had taken such little personal responsibility for the way my life felt, the way I looked, the way I thought, the way I spoke. There was no personal responsibility. It was always like- You're a victim in that. Yeah. Yeah. It's everybody else's fault but mine. And on this day was the first time where I just could not find a person to blame in that moment. I tried. I couldn't find a person to blame. And so it was that day where I said, okay, something's off here. I don't like the way I feel. I don't like the way my life looks on a day-to-day basis. I'm sick of being 330 pounds and literally- probably once a week, you could talk to my ex-wife and she would find me on the floor, in the closet, in tears because my clothes felt so tight on me. I was so uncomfortable in my body. And so imagine that like before you leave the house, you have to get over snotty face tears because you feel so disgusting about who you are and the way you look. And this was my life. And so it just came to a point where I said, listen, there are people out there that have had it way worse than me. They've had way more trauma in their lives growing up. And yet they seem to be able to manage their lives pretty well. They seem overall like they're happy. So what is it that they know that I don't know? And that's kind of what started my trek on, you know, reading and getting coached and doing all these things just to figure it out. I'm a pretty smart guy. Why have I not figured this out yet? And it was like, okay, well, it's like, if you're raised in a house that only spoke French the entire time you were growing up, you're not stupid because you don't know how to speak Spanish. You just okay. never had access to it. So I never had access to self-leadership language growing up. I never had access to the notion that my thoughts control my reality. It wasn't a language that was spoken. Prisoner language is what was spoken. I love my mom. She works her ass off and she's an incredible mother, but she learned it from her parents, right? It comes down. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was just like, I need to learn this new language. What do I need to do to learn this new language?
1: Yeah. And it's an interesting point, mate, that you make. And you talk about it often in the book, you know, around changing the perspectives, you know, instead of this is happening to me or I'm a victim of that. It's just reframing that, isn't it? To, I can take responsibility for this and I can change the way that I'm living my life because I can take responsibility and I have the power to take responsibility, but it's also putting your hand up, isn't it? And saying, I have been a fuck up or I haven't been doing things right. And I am going to put my hand up and say, it's my fault now. It's up to me to make a difference. It's up to me to pull myself out of this hole. Is that a big part of it?
0: Yeah. And the thing that I like to be really careful about, because this happened to me when I first started going on this journey, is that my default, and I had a call with a client this morning, and it's just funny how this stuff always comes up with people. I don't need anybody to beat me up because I do a great job of that myself. I can beat myself up worse than anybody else in the world can do. And so what I don't want people to do in hearing this conversation or reading the book or anything else is to have an insight of, oh, this is me. I'm the problem here. And then go into the shame spiral and the judgment spiral and the guilt spiral of, God, I'm such a fucking idiot. I can't believe I've been doing this to myself my entire, it's just, it's not helpful. What's helpful instead typically is looking at the result of your life right now, right? Whether it's what you're doing in in your work or your relationships or your health or just how you feel and asking yourself, is this effective or ineffective for how I want to feel, right? I want to make it binary and I also want to make it informational. I don't want to make it where it's a judgment on my personality. I don't want to make it where I'm like, I'm a bad person or I'm stupid or what's wrong with me. It's simply a a data point. So if I wake up in the morning and I look at my phone and my phone says that it's going to rain today on the weather app, then I don't go into any self-judgment about the fact that it's going to be raining today. But I do say, okay, what's going to be most effective for me when I go outside today and it's raining? Is it to bring an umbrella or not bring an umbrella? And then I say, oh, you know what? But last week I knew it was going to rain. I didn't bring an umbrella and I got wet. I'm such a fucking idiot. You wouldn't do that. You would just say, oh yeah, it's going to rain today. I'm going to bring an umbrella. That's a more effective way to move forward. So that's overly simplifying, right? When you're really in the shit, it doesn't feel as binary and easy to make that decision, but it really is that simple. That's the way the system works. If we can just look at what's more effective than what we're doing now and start moving in that general direction, you don't have to make massive changes overnight. You don't have to like disown your entire family and move to an ashram in India. It can be much smaller little things you do on a day by day basis. That stuff adds up and you start feeling that your life is changing.
1: What about when it does rain though and you don't bring out your umbrella? It's about not putting yourself down, isn't it? It's about really giving yourself permission to say, you know what, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to, but I've still got the power to rewrite that and make changes next time, be better prepared and stuff like that. What sort of self-talk would go through your mind if you were caught in a spiral and things sort of backfired? You mentioned earlier something that's unhelpful is saying that it's your fault and judging yourself and not good enough and all that. Instead of those unhelpful tactics and talks that you have with yourself, what's something that's more helpful?
0: Yeah. There's, there's so many things here, depending on, on, on what you're going through. There's so many things that the number one thing though, and this is from work with mentors and people like Byron Katie. I don't know if you're familiar with Byron Katie's work, but love Byron Katie's work. She's amazing. And this is really about not being in resistance to what it is you feel, right? That's the number one thing. Like if you were to walk up to somebody on the street without saying anything and you simply just said, Hey, can you please just put your hand up like this? And they put their hand up and you say, is it okay if I touch your hand? And they go, yeah, sure. And they have their hand up, and you take your hand and you push it against theirs, they're gonna push back. Without you saying anything, naturally, when you push against their hand, they push back. They're not gonna just let their hand go, they'll push Uh back. Uh Uh That's the way it works when we have these thoughts that tell us we're dumb or we're stupid or it didn't work out the right way, so we must be idiots. We're in resistance to the thing, so the thing has no choice but to push back against us. But instead, if we don't have resistance to it, if I can notice, like, you know what's interesting? that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. And I can feel right now in this moment, I'm feeling like I'm kind of stupid. I'm feeling like I really fucked up on that, right? Being like, cool, I can be with that. I can be with the fact that I feel that way without having a serious relationship to that thought, right? Mm -hmm. I wanna have a much more casual relationship with my thinking. My thoughts are not instructions. My thoughts are not truth. My thoughts Mm -hmm. are just thoughts. Mm -hmm. And the more I can recognize that I am not my thoughts, When those things come up, I don't have to be in resistance. I can welcome them in. I can say, yeah, cool. I'm feeling kind of sad right now. Awesome. Sadness. You're allowed to be here. I'm feeling happy right now. Happy, happy. You're allowed to be here too. Like we spend so much time trying to grab and hold on to positive emotions and push away with all of our might negative, quote, negative emotions. Mm -hmm. But if we actually just welcome them all in and none of them had to be here and none of them had to go they could be in our aura. One of my mantras is present, but irrelevant. Yes, that feeling is present, but it doesn't have to be relevant to the way I feel about life, right? Oh, there's sadness. Cool. I'm going to go about my day. There's despair. Cool. I'm going to go take a few deep breaths or meditate or go for a walk. All of our heavy emotions are a part of our built-in early detection system in our bodies, in our heart, in our soul that tells us something is a little off. It's just trying to direct us to get back on the path. So in the same way in your car, you have a little light that comes on in your dashboard when you're low on gas, heavy emotions are the same thing. They're just saying, hey, just so you know, something's a little off. You would never have the gas light come on in your car and you start screaming at your car. You're such a piece of shit. I I just put gas in you last week. What do you mean you need gas again? No, you're thankful. You're like, well, thank God that hasn't happened. I would've got stranded in the middle of the street. And the light doesn't come on when you're out of gas. The light comes on when you have 30, 40, 50 miles left in the tank. So you have plenty of room to do what you need to do to fill up the tank again. Same thing with heavy emotions. They come out at the perfect early time to let you know, hey, before this gets to be more than it needs to be, you may want to look at ways to recalibrate in this moment.
1: Mate, I love that analogy. And I love how you've articulated that because it makes so much sense, you know, and I think it just goes to show that, you know, whatever thoughts that we're experiencing, I think as human beings, we shouldn't identify that as our identity. I think what happens is, and I know from my own experience in the past, there might have been negative emotions where you shut them out. Like, that's not true. That's not right. No. And you get angry and you get sad or you get sad because you're feeling sad. You know what I mean? That sadness feeling's there and you think, I shouldn't be sad because I've got everything. I've got a wife, got a house, got a car, whatever it is. But these feelings and these thoughts shouldn't be here. But I think if we can liken it to driving a car, for example, and looking at it as a fuel light, those, those things come up are okay. They're okay to be there. Don't get angry, don't resist, don't fight, don't turn on yourself when they come up because they're there for a reason and it's like you said perfectly, it's about how then I can recalibrate to get back on that path where I need to get back onto and unfortunately for those people who can't naturally get back on that path by themselves, it is important to reach out and ask for help and that's everything that we promote and speak about within Living It Ain't Weak to Speak. And not everyone has the insight or the foresight or the skills to be able to do all of this on their own. And you're not supposed to, really, are
0: you? Dude, I have like two coaches and a therapist, and this is my industry, and I still need help. So if I'm immersed in this stuff, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and I still need an outlet, then the normal person who's an accountant who's dealing with their own family stuff and maybe the ill health of a parent or you know their kid getting in trouble in school or whatever it is they're dealing with, the worst thing in the world we can do is isolate. And I know at least for me, and again, this goes back to men, but it's not just men at all. This happens with women as well, is this fear of reaching out because we don't want to be a burden. You have your own shit to deal with. I don't want to put my shit on you. And, and this has definitely been my thing in the past. And I remember the time where I finally kind of got forced into challenging that belief was when my ex-wife and I split up. And that was an entirely crazy story. And it happened kind of out of nowhere. I didn't even see it coming. And I was devastated when it happened. We have been together for
2: 12 years.
0: First inclination was, go figure this out on your own. Don't reach out to anybody, don't lean on anybody, you're a burden, they're not there to be your person. Immediately, that was my first thought. And then I realized very shortly thereafter, within a couple of days, I wasn't gonna be able to do it on my own. It was too heavy to hold that burden all by myself, I couldn't do it. And so I challenged myself, and I reached out to four of my friends, people that I know I can trust, and I know would be there for me, and would probably love to be there for me if I gave them the chance. And I called them and I said, listen, this is what just happened. And I'm realizing that my default mode of being an isolationist is kicking in. And I am going to feel like a burden every time I reach out to you. But my commitment is that I'm going to reach out to you if you are willing to help. Are you willing to help? And what do you think all four of them said?
1: Of course, man. I'd love to help. I'm here. Tell me what you need. I'll listen.
0: They dropped everything for me. I wasn't a burden in the slightest. But I I had to go first. I had to put myself in that vulnerable position of saying, I know I need help and I'm afraid to ask for help because I don't want to be a burden. Like I said, what I was actually feeling, which gave them the chance to say, you're never a burden. As many times as you've been there for me, it's a joy for me to be there for you. Like people in your life want to support you. Don't rob them of the
1: gift of supporting. Amazing, mate. Absolutely amazing. And I think that, again, this goes back to play on the same discussion that we just had a moment ago about the thoughts, you know, that burden, that, that is a thought, it's a feeling. It's not true. And so many people that are probably listening to this episode, you know, right now, would feel the exact same way. They'd feel like a burden to reach out and ask for help. And the amount of people that would go, You're not a burden at all. Had you have reached out and asked, I would have loved to have helped. I would love to have jumped on board and listened to you and got you back on track and got you the support and help that you may need at that time. And unfortunately we 're not mind readers, you know your friends aren 't mind readers you know, and had you have not gone to them and said, "You know boys i 'm scared i'm worried to speak to you because I feel like a burden i 'm not a burden. Are you willing to help me? Can I get that commitment from you to help me?" they might never have known, and that 's the power of having a conversation and you can hide pain, you can hide struggles extremely well, and the pace of life these days is faster than it 's ever been before and People don't pick up on behavioural changes and warning signs. And it's even difficult for people like you and I, who are in this space day in and day out, to still pick up on some of those warning signs that are evident. Imagine what the normal layperson would be thinking that hasn't got the understanding around mental health literacy and warning signs and these really deep, safe discussions that we can have with people. If they're not equipped with any of that, like where do they start?
0: And that goes back to what you said that I loved so much earlier in this conversation is be the safe person. So like for example, if I desperately need to buy milk, I'm walking down the street and I see a dry cleaner and I see a grocery store, which one do I go into for milk? You're going to go to the grocery store. I go to the grocery store, right? So if I am somebody who shows up in the world as somebody safe, then when a friend of mine has a challenge, they go, oh. Well, when I need milk, I go to the grocery store. When I need my clothes clean, I go to the dry cleaner. And when I need support, I call Jason. They just know because you show up as that person for them. So the safer you are, the less we have to worry about trying to pick up on the warning signals because Mm -hmm. people will want to reach out to us because they know that we're safe to do
1: so. Instead of being reactive, we're being proactive. And that's what I do love about it, mate. And I think everyone, every single person that's listening or not listening or people reading your book or whatever it is, watching our TED Talks, everyone's got the power and the understanding and the natural inhibitions to become the safest person possible. We've all got it in ourselves. Everyone's got that. You don't have to go study science or a medical degree or become a doctor or whatever it is to be able to be the safest person possible. It all comes down to listening and being open and probably vulnerable yourself. For me to be a safe person, I had to be safe within myself too. you And what that meant for me was being open and honest with my thoughts and feelings with other people and showing vulnerability. Because if I wasn't doing it, how on earth could I expect someone else to do it around myself? So it all starts with me. And that's just the way I've tackled these things in my life, mate. But enough about that. Let's talk about Prison Break, mate. You know, number one international bestseller. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Mate, how long did it take you to write this?
0: Longer than it should have. It was probably the better part of like 18 months that it took yeah. me to write it. Probably could have written in half that time if I had dedicated more time to it. But yeah, it took about 18 months.
1: Wow, mate. It's insane. And how can people find this if they want to track you down?
0: Yeah. So I'm actually going to give you a link where your listeners can get a free copy of it. So they get a free digital really? copy. Really? That's amazing. Yeah. And if they're in the Are States, I'll a, yeah, I'll show That's... them a physical copy if they're in the States, but everywhere else in the world, you can download an audio or a digital version absolutely free. We'll give you a specific link just for your
1: people. Wow. And mate, I noticed in here, you mentioned a few times that you go back to this book quite regularly. Is that just to recalibrate?
0: Yeah. My number one chapter that I go back to the most is there's a chapter called Your Intuition is Drunk. And the reason is, is because it actually underpins the way my work and my understandings ended up going after I wrote the book. And it's really understanding that the experience we have of life is directly related to the quality of our state of mind in any given moment. So if you look at uh, one of my favorite quotes ever from Albert Einstein, he says, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. So if I'm really low or I'm really anxious or I'm really upset and I'm really pissed off about something, I can't solve the problem there doesn't work that way. I need to increase my level of consciousness in order for that to happen. I need to be able to rise above the situation to gain my faculties back, to gain my creativity back because no creativity exists down here on the bottom. Creativity exists up here on the top. And so the reason that chapter was so powerful for me is because I use this analogy a lot. I have a lot of snow globes in my life. I love snow globes which feels really weird to admit. It's like somebody admitting they're like a cat lady. But there's a really particular reason because snow globes are a beautiful representation of our lives when we're in despair or when we're in stress. When the snow globe is turned upside down and all this stuff is flying around, that's what life feels like. Life is just chaotic. Life's going crazy all around us and we can't see our hand in front of our face. And it's like, this reminds me of my ex and I can't believe my boss said this and and, why is my kid doing it? It's just like life just feels crazy. But here's the challenge. That's not a problem. The problem is how we try to deal with the snow globe when it's shaken up. We think that it's our responsibility to take every single piece of snow and put it back down on the ground. That's our job. We need to run around in circles and every single thing we got to solve. And then here's the challenge. When you're doing that and you're running around picking these pieces of snow and putting them down on the floor, inevitably your feet are just kicking up the snow that you just put on the floor and it's all back up in the air again. So you never actually get any reprieve. But here's the beautiful thing about snow globes is that when a snow globe is shaken up, there's only one thing you need to do for the snow to settle. You just put the fucking thing down. And the system is going to right itself if you give it 30 seconds or a minute. The snow is all going to settle on its own without me doing anything. And the reason that's so important is because I want us to all realize that the only evidence we have in life is that there's nothing we've ever been through that we haven't gotten through. Because we're here, you and I, having this Mm -hmm. conversation right now. There's nothing that's actually stopped me from living because we're talking right now. If I can be more mindful of the fact that everything that feels heavy and full of despair is temporary and isolated at best. It's not permanent. It's not pervasive. When you lose a job, it doesn't mean you're never going to find a job again. And it also doesn't mean that nobody will ever love you and you have to move in with your parents and you're going to be a piece of shit your whole life. It's not pervasive. It doesn't take over your entire life. It is temporary and isolated, just like our thoughts. And I bet I could ask any single person listening to this podcast right now, What was the thing you were stressed out about four Thursdays ago at 3 p.m.? No idea. No fucking clue. Because the system works that way. Stressful thoughts come up, and whether you take them seriously or not, at some point, they go away.
1: But in the moment, mate, they feel like they're not going away, you know? And that's why you almost kick into this autopilot, it's like rushing, trying to figure them all out as quick as you possibly can. Otherwise, it feels like, you know, they get to a place where they're unmanageable. How do you quieten down the, the snow globe, so to speak, let it all calm down before you then go and try and make decisions or you look for the right solutions or try and problem solve? I feel like even for me, mate, that's one of the hardest things is to take that break and know that you don't actually have to solve it right then and there.
0: That's one of the things too is I'll just say really quickly – People will read Prison Break or they'll see me do a keynote or something and they'll come and talk to me afterwards and they say, okay, yeah. I get it. Self-leadership, this is amazing. <laughs> how do I do that 100% of the time? And I say, when you find out, let me know. <laughs> so the practices that I go back to, this is part of why the intuition is drunk thing is so powerful, is how do you get somebody to sober up when they're drunk? You got to wait. Want, yeah, maybe hydrate them. You let them yeah, get yeah. some rest, but you can't like force somebody to sober up. Nah. The challenge is, is that when we're in resistance to that fact, And somebody's sitting in front of us that we love. Let's say it's somebody we really love, like our best friend or our partner or whoever, and they're super, super drunk. And we're like, here, just drink more water. Here, take a nap. Like, why aren't you getting sober faster? It doesn't help the situation at all. It does not make them sober any faster to be that attached to it. So one of the things that I do for myself, I have this thing that I call PBQs. PBQs stand for prison break questions. It actually didn't even make it in the book because it was something I developed after the book came out. Mm -hmm. But prison break questions are essentially these very incisive, introspective questions that take whatever is a problem and make it no longer problematic. It doesn't solve the problem. It makes the problem no longer problematic. So what does that mean? The structure of a prison break question essentially says, if I knew, what would I do? So the reason I'm sharing that, and you can make as many prison break questions as you want in the world, there's limitless numbers. There was one day in particular, this is when I was still living on the East Coast, where I was feeling... So down, just stressed, anxious. I was feeling depression start to come in and I hadn't felt that in a little while. So that was scary because now it's like, oh my God, you did all this work. You wrote a book, you did all these things. Why are you still suffering? And it just become this like downward spiral of shame and self-judgment and all this stuff. And I'm trying to reframe and I'm trying to do all these things and nothing's working. And so I try to go for a walk and I'm like doing self-talk and nothing is working. I am so stuck in this shit. So, okay, one last thing I'm gonna try and then I don't know what else I can do. I'm gonna do a PBQ my pbq was this if i knew that all of these feelings were going to last for the next 10 minutes and then at minute number 11 it was just going to vanish but for the next 10 minutes i was going to feel this really intensely how would i treat myself for the next 10 minutes and when i asked myself that question the answer became fuck i'd be a lot more gentle i'd be a lot more compassionate I wouldn't put so much pressure on myself to get rid of the thoughts because they're going to go in 10 minutes on their own and in going through that dialogue of how i would treat myself for the next 10 minutes immediately i felt a shift i felt an energetic shift because i wasn't in resistance anymore they're going to be gone in 10 minutes why do i need to fight them off and waste energy
1: you friended them i friended them
0: them, right they're going to be gone in a little while so fine come in sit down grab a drink i know you're leaving soon anyways And just lowering my resistance to their presence, within five minutes, I felt massive lifts of the anxiety and the stress. It started just disappearing. And then in that moment, as it started disappearing, I started saying, Oh, you know what? Actually, that one thing that I I wasn't sure what to do with, I bet I can call John. I bet he would know what to do about that. A super easy solution that I never would have had access to when I was
1: beating myself and being in Mm. resistance to what I was feeling. And it's funny that because when you are in resistance and you beat yourself up, it's like, Your mind's not that clear. You're not making the best decisions and the solutions that you're trying to grab at aren't probably the right ones anyway because your mind becomes a little distorted. But when you're coming from a place of peace and and you're coming from a place of acceptance and love, compassion, friendship, and all that sort of stuff, what we do with our feelings and thoughts when they're intrusive, that is, it's a lot easier to navigate through that snow globe, isn't it? It really is. Mate, I've had times in my life where, you know, I've got certain strategies in place that work for me and sometimes they don't work. Like you just said, like I go for a run or I read or I just sit and I accept the thoughts and I accept the feelings and, you know, sometimes they penetrate. But when you know and you you understand that you're at peace, the fact that you can't control everything, that's one thing that certainly works for me too and knowing that this will pass. But you've just got to embrace the situation that you're in in the moment. And it's all right to feel those things because if you didn't feel those things, you wouldn't be a human being. You know, we're humans. You can't
0: numb some emotions and not numb others. Mm. Like if you numb one, you numb all, right? So if if you want to numb the pain, that means you're going to numb the amount of happiness you can feel, the amount of love you can feel, the amount of connection you can feel. So it's really a matter of not judging the thoughts, not taking them too seriously. That's the big thing. And just understanding how the system works. It's like the way gravity works, we don't have to think about gravity. Nobody has like a gravity mindset that they're working on, right? It's like gravity is just all around us all the time, right? If you have something in your hand, you turn your hand over, it falls. The more we understand the way the system works, oh, I'm having these really stressful thoughts. And so that's why I'm having these stressful feelings. That doesn't give you a method by which to get rid of them, but it at least lets you know what's going on. So with gravity, if I have something in my hand, I turn my hand over and it falls. I don't go, oh my God, what happened? It's the zombie apocalypse. Like I don't freak out. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. The way gravity works is that if you turn your hand over, it falls. I'm really stressed out right now. I don't, I just, I feel so, my chest is tight. I feel warmth. Oh yeah, I'm having really stressful thoughts right now. Well, yeah, of course my body feels that way because my thoughts are being stressful, right? Just the awareness of like, that's the way the system is supposed to work. That when you have stressful thoughts, you start feeling stressful emotions sometimes that can be enough for people to be like, okay, cool. That's fine. Maybe there's nothing for me to do right now. Just observing and recognizing that that's what's happening in the system can actually be freeing because then you stop taking it so personal.
1: That's probably a whole nother conversation being self-aware and and that doesn't just happen overnight either. And it comes with constant training, rewiring of the brain, speaking up, getting good insight, reading books like prison break, speaking to friends, family. And I think it's important, but it's, All of this really does come back to the one thing that you speak so prominently about in this book, and I agree wholeheartedly on, Jason, is not only self-leadership, but being in control of your own life and not being a prisoner to it. And you're still you. It's just the reframing. It's looking at it from a different perspective, but also just attacking things in a completely different way. And what I love most about the book is it's really easy to read, you know, like pages between chapters they're not like 40 pages they're like six seven pages between chapters you're constantly you know succeeding and you're accomplishing chapters in this book quite easily and it's a very easy read mate i thought it was an amazing book i can't believe you're giving a copy to everyone that's listening mate digitally and if they're in the states yeah, holler at us in the facebook group and we'll do our best to get one of them hard copies sent out Mate, quickly, what are you working on at the moment? So the book obviously is like a Bible to you. You keep going back to it. Have you got anything else in the pipelines at the moment? I know you've got a couple of other projects going on? Do you want to share them?
0: Sure. Yeah. The primary work that I do in, in my business now in, in coaching is I mentor other transformational coaches, life coaches, health coaches, mindset coaches on how to build their businesses, but how to do it in a way that's really authentic to them. So not like the flavor of the month marketing tactic, but to really show up as themselves, to be vulnerable, to be really open and honest about their experience, but to package it in a way that actually serves people, right? It's all about serving. It's not about being salesy or being marketing. It's just about serving. So that's what I do primarily for coaches. But the thing that I'm, I'm really excited about that's kind of coming on the back of all this is I'm working on a couple different shows that are going to combine hip-hop, spirituality, comedy, kind of all these things together around personal growth. And that's, yeah, yeah, so those are projects that are in the works right now. One that's with a production company that we're really excited about and one that's going to be just kind of a podcast thing for me. I'll keep you posted on those, but those are in process right
1: now. that's amazing. How good is that? Imagine how cool that would be to combine everything that you've worked on and worked towards in one place. And I think that's the beauty of your passions, right? If you can gel them all together in some way, that's going to be, you know, an unstoppable force. And I think that's where the beauty lies in chasing dreams, mate, which is what you're doing day in and day out. Just before we wrap, mate, where can people find you? Best places
0: to find me are Facebook and Instagram. I am at the Jason Goldberg. And uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Facebook. We can continue the conversation there and I share all kinds of fun content that you'll probably
1: love. Yeah, perfect. And what I'll do is once Jason's episode goes live, I'll introduce you into the Facebook group feel free just to share any of these things, any insights, any further wisdoms. You know, the group's very small, but it's a community that we're growing together under the podcast so that we can help more people, spread more love. But mate, I do want to ask you as well, before we finish this show and before we finish this episode, what's the one piece of advice or the best piece of advice that you've ever received in your life? And if you had access to it earlier, how can we share it with the people that are listening?
0: That's actually an easy one for me. So my coach, my mentor who's now become a dear friend and co-creator with me as well. Steve Chandler. Years ago when we were coaching. I sent him this really long email about all these things I was stressed out about. I'm so stressed about this. And what about this? And I'm anxious about this. And what if this doesn't work? Just this like five page long email. And I send it off to him and I'm like, great. He's going to give me the answers. He's going to tell me what I need to do. He's going to make it all better. I get an email back about 20 minutes later. And it has 10 words in it, 10 words, that's it. And they were the most powerful 10 words I've ever gotten from a coach ever. Very, very simple. He said, so much compassion for what you are putting yourself through. So much compassion for what you're putting yourself through. And it was in that moment that I realized that all of the stress, all of the anxiety, all of the fear, I'm doing it to myself. And the way he shared that, he wasn't trying to be funny. He wasn't trying to ridicule me. He was saying, I really feel deeply for how much pressure you're putting on yourself. I really feel deeply for how much you are expecting yourself to do things that are maybe unrealistic and it's not fair to you. I have so much compassion for the fact that you have all of this capability and this creativity in your heart and in your mind, and you are doing this thing to yourself that's squashing and silencing that creativity. And I always go back to that because at the end of the day, if I can remember that I am both the problem and the solution for anything that's going on in my world, It makes me a lot more hopeful and optimistic for life.
1: I absolutely love that, mate. The problem and the solution, you've got greater control. You're in charge of your own life. brings it all back to self-leadership. It's what you preach day in, day out. It's what you write about. It's what you speak about. It's what you do your keynotes on. I can't wait to hear what's up in the production world with these shows, mate. Much love. Very grateful. The journey that you've been on, mate, so much gratitude, so much love. I'm grateful to know you. I appreciate taking the time to be on the podcast to share all of this with our listeners. No doubt people will walk away better than how we found them. And um, mate, very, very thankful for your time again today.
0: I'm so thankful for you. I'm so happy we've been able to meet. Shout out to Dom, by the way. we got to shout out Dom for being this. Shout out to Dom, yeah, yeah. Shout out to Dom. Thanks, mate. And dude, seriously, the mission you're on and the way you show up in the world inspires me so much and we need so many more change makers like you in the world. So thank you for the work that you're doing. It has a lot. It means a lot to me personally, but it means a lot to society and to humanity. So so thank you for doing what you're doing, bro.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. And um, if I can be of any assistance or help along the way, don't ever hesitate to reach out and ask, all right? Thank you, brother. Same to you. Thanks, mate. Thank you again for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Weak to Speak. Please like, share, and spread the love to as many people as you can. Let people know that you subscribe to the show. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation could save a life. If you want to continue this chat, Please join me on the podcast Facebook group at living.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you, but in the meantime, stay well, keep living, and remember, it ain't weak to speak. Thank you, and have a top day. Hold up.